0: We are looking at Judges chapter 7, verse 16 to verse 25. Now, I wonder what you would consider uh, to be the greatest upset in history. Uh, if you love uh, British military history, uh, perhaps it's the Battle of Agincourt, uh, where during the Hundred, Days War, Hundred Years' War, <laughs> uh, the French outnumbered the English and still lost. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's the Battle of Isandlwana, where the well-armed British uh, were defeated by the Zulu troops, armed with short spears and leather shields, and apparently with guns that they didn't know how to use, uh, but they lost at the Battle of Isandlwana. Everybody likes an underdog, don't we? Uh, especially an underdog that wins. Uh, We love to see uh, individuals who are outmanned and outgunned emerge victorious. Why do we love under those? Why is that? Well, maybe it's because deep inside of us we recognize our own weaknesses. And we are longing for a hero who can win the fight of life. And we love seeing people overcome their weaknesses and triumph. We long for that. Because it's perhaps buried inside all of us. And perhaps this is why the book of Judges resonates with many of us as followers of Jesus. I mean, most of the well-known characters in the Bible you learnt at Sunday school are in this book. Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. These are the most loved characters in the Bible. They are found here. Uh, we love them, we love these characters, we love Judges, I think, because Judges, as I said this morning, it is good news for weak people. It is good news for underdogs. Uh, judges is a history of how God uses weak people through their weaknesses to achieve great victories. Now today we are continuing, uh, we started this morning looking at uh, Judges chapter 7, uh, the story of Gideon as he takes on the Midianites. Uh, We looked at verse 1 to verse 15. And what we remember this morning is that we remember, uh, we we, we saw how God directs Gideon to choose the 300 men, to reduce this army of 32,000 to 300 people to fight the Midianites. And also we saw that Gideon is terrified by this. And so God strengthens him by giving, you know, he gives him the option. Uh, Do you want to go to fight immediately or do you want to you know, see what the Midianites are up to and be strengthened through that glimpse of what they're up to. And he went over there and he saw the Midianites camp and God gave him that revelation through the Midianites that Gideon will image victorious. Verse 15 is where we left it off, isn't it? As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream, the dream by the Midianites, the two Midianites, and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. We, we said this morning that Gideon is pressing forward in weakness. He's weak, but he's pressing forward to take on the Midianites. That is where we left it off this morning. It was a cliffhanger. So we've got the 300 men and we've got... 135,000 Midianites uh, waiting for them in the valley, on many camels. And that's why we left it off, and the question we perhaps were asking ourselves is, uh, how will Gideon fare? How will these 300 men fare against this large army? And where will it all end? And most importantly, as we read through the Bible, the Bible is all about Jesus, wherever you open it. So as we come to this story, the question we're asking how does this story of Gideon, points us to Jesus himself. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus? Well, come with me as we conclude this uh, historic epic uh, by looking from verse 16 to verse 25. And there are just four things I want us to share this evening from these verses. The first truth we learn from this passage uh, in front of you in your outline is that we are fighting against powerful enemies. We are fighting against powerful enemies. Uh, Gideon has visited, as I said, the camp of Midian, and he comes back, uh, a changed man, and he immediately, in verse 16, gets down to his war strategy. Look at verse 16. And he divided, that is Gideon, the 300 men into three companies, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So he's got these 300 people now, and he's got these empty jars, and he gets them to light these torches, and he puts those torches inside them, and there are three companies. That's what verse 16 tells us. Now, that is a strange decision. It's not the thing you expect him to do. You expect Gideon to tell them to grab their swords and go into battle, but they're not doing that. They are going in with these empty jars and torches, well, with these jars with torches inside. And it's a strange decision. They are going in totally outnumbered and without any swords. So how does Gideon think they will win? Now, we haven't even thought whether this idea has come from the Lord or Gideon himself has thought about it. I think the way he's doing it, he's a man now clothed in the Holy Spirit and depending on God. And he's obviously being inspired by the Lord to do it this way. And but how does Gideon think they win? Look at the 17 to 18. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. That's why he's telling them. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Now, we should note in passing here that Gideon is finally showing the true marks of great leadership. And he's showing it in a very impossible situation. Do you notice what Gideon says here? He's saying, when we get to the camp, do as I do. He is leading by example. He's not driving them by threats or commands. No. A great leader takes people where they would never go on their own but it does it by precept and example. And that is something all of us who have leadership responsibilities at home, whether we are parents, ma'am, at home, or, whether we, or leaders at church serving as deacons or pastors and so forth, and whatever, or Sunday school teaching, something, or at work, whether we are managers. is something we need to learn about leadership. We need to learn that we lead by precept and example. And it's very hard. We must embody the message. We, we can't tell people to behave themselves if we ourselves are not behaving properly. And people are very good at seeing that. And it's the same thing as a church who offers leadership in general in this area we're in. We must embody the message of Christ because it doesn't matter how many flowers we put through the doors if people don't have confidence in us as people of God then it's going to be very hard for them to come and hear. And we need God to help us in that, because what? We are weak vessels, so we need the Lord's help to help us there. So Gideon is showing great marks of leadership, but that's not the key point here. The key point is that Gideon has finally embraced a fight against the Now, Humanly speaking, as we saw this morning, what Gideon is doing here is completely beyond him. Uh, it's bad enough reducing them to thirty-five thousand, reducing two thousand people to three hundred troops, <laughs> to send the three hundred unhar- un, 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 unharmed or, if you like, without any weapons, into a fight just looks crazy, humanly speaking. It looks impossible. But that's the situation they find themselves in, and it's the situation we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus. Our fight is not physical, of course, it's a fight against spiritual enemies. And and these are enemies that we look at times when we look at ourselves and we feel we are against powerful enemies in this world. Ephesians six verse twelve, which we should do or know by heart, reminds us some of these enemies. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. This is not like, you know, it's not there is a man. These are the rulers are against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, not on earth, in the heavenly places. Powerful enemies. Now, the government, of course, constantly undertakes a national risk assessment don't they, against terrorism and uh, the threat level as you know currently, is severe. Uh, this means an attack is highly likely. They love changing these things up. Uh, but you see, in the kingdom of God, our, 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 if you like, our risk assessment is not severe. It is the final level, critical, which means an attack is imminent. Why? Because as believers, we are constantly under attack by the enemy. And we have many enemies. Our enemies are not just those ones mentioned in Ephesians. We are at war against sin. We are at war against the world system itself. Your life as a follower of Jesus is a battlefield with many dangers lurking. But sadly, sadly for many of us in our tradition, we look at this and we wonder, it's not something we take serious. It's a ground we've ceded to the charismatics. The charismatics are the ones who worry about the spiritual warfare, the enemy, and so forth. For us, we, we don't, we live, many of us, in our tradition, we live with what I call a peacetime mentality rather than a wartime mentality. We do not realize that we are like Gideon and the 300. We are up against powerful enemies. And, friends, you need to remember that your life is a battle. And your enemy, Satan, is relentless. And he's doing everything in his power to fight and divert you from a simple and pure devotion to Christ. And once you realize that, you realize another thing that prayer is critical. Because, you see, without prayer, we are all adrift. Prayer surrounds human weakness with divine strength. But sadly, that confronts us with the paradox. What's the paradox? The paradox is that until we see that we are at war, we won't pray. And we are not praying because we are not seeing that we are at war. So to break the paradox, so to speak, to break that chain, what we need to do is we need to start praying that God helps us, each one of us, to see that we are like the 300 men. To see that we are up against powerful enemies. That's truth number one. All God's people are fighting against powerful enemies. But here is the good news in this passage. The good news is that we are not alone. And that's the second observation in, in your outline. We are up against powerful enemies, but we are not fighting alone. Look at that. So Gideon and the 300 men set off for the fight in verse 19. Verse 19 says, so Gideon and the 100 the, the, the men, he takes the 100 men with him, and obviously the other two camps. And they came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. The middle watch here is probably closer to midnight, there's some debate about is it 10pm, is it midnight, it's probably there. The the point is that the enemy is probably sleeping a bit here, and even if they are at work, they're like, "Mm." they're a bit tired and they're just about to go to bed. And so Gideon and the 300, they go in, uh, look at uh, verse 19, continues, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three campers, so the other two have joined in, blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword, of course they're not carrying a sword, they're crying out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, it's a brilliant strategy this, because you see, the Midianites and their cameos are now waking up to flashing light and deafening sounds. You know, you can imagine these three companies just shouting this out, and they're coming out of sleep. I mean, if you try to wake up in the middle of the night, I mean, it, well, it's dark, and the, you know, you can imagine the camels themselves, they have uh, in complete disarray. It is a stampede. You don't know what's going on. You think you're, you know, being invaded or something. And notice that there's a complete stampede here without even the 300 attacking anyone. Look how there's 21 ins. Every man stood In his place around the camp. And all the army ran. Now we should note in passing here that the author of Judges is drawing us back to what we learned this morning. We learned this morning that weakness is necessary to serve God. You must be weak to serve God. And God wants to use that weakness for your for his service. And so we see again, they embody this because they're just there standing, not doing anything. They're just shouting a sword for the Lord and for They don't have any swords themselves. They're not attacking anyone. They have no weapons. So their posture actually is a posture of weakness. But their weakness is being made strong because the Midianites are in complete disarray. They are killing one another. They are running in all sorts of directions. Look at verse 21. ends. They cried out and fled. Which were the original Hebrew there? It's like they are running everywhere. You know, it's like that sort of thing you see, you saw in Manchester, isn't it? You know, when there was an attack at Manchester Stadium. And people are coming out and they're just running in all sorts of direction. They don't know where they're going. They're just afraid of what's behind them. And that's what the Hebrew, original Hebrew there, captures. Why is this happening? Is this because Gideon is such a brilliant military strategist? No, the answer is in verse 22. Gideon, yes, he's done well, but the Lord is the true hero in the story. Look at verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord, the God of Israel, set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. God has confused the enemy just like he confused Sisera by the river Caisen. And now they are completely defeated. The 300 men have won because God is with them. They have won because they are not fighting alone. They are fighting with the God. They are fighting with the God of Israel. The Lord God is a man of war, the scripture tells us. And here he confuses the enemy. God has kept his promise to Gideon. He has gone before him to victory. And friends, this is good news for all of us here. It is good news because it tells us that no matter how powerful our enemies are in this world, in this country, in your life, at work, or in, your, in, in whatever challenges you are facing, you are never facing any, the enemies of sin, death, and hell, and, and all the rest that's set in us. You're not facing those things alone. God is there with you. Interesting enough that whenever the country goes to war, there's always a debate that comes up. And the debate, is usually, of course, is a usual debate about should we fight, should we not. But one debate is always there. And the debate is to do with equipment. I mean, you think that a government, before it goes somewhere, it will sort out of the equipment. But there's always something about equipment. And if you read the Chilcot inquiry, and you manage to spare yourself perhaps 10 days to read it, page by page, if you did, you notice that there was huge criticism there about that the soldiers were not ready when they were sent out to Iraq. That debate always comes up. We, we have a similar debate at the moment with police force, isn't it, with terrorism? There's a debate about, are police, you know, the police gets, you know, helpful. And of course, the answer usually, of course, uh, the opposition will say, no, it's not helpful. But there's always a debate whether people are being sent to combat or to fight a particular evil without proper protection and equipment. But friends, this, hasn't, this doesn't have to be your worry. This isn't a worry we have in Christ. We never fight a good fight of faith with poor equipment or lack of leadership. God is always with us. He's there by our side. And that means that regardless of how dark our circumstances become, Regardless of how difficult life may get, God is always with us. He dwells in us by His Spirit. And therefore, we never have to fear that God will abandon us. We never have to fear as a church that God will somehow abandon His church. How can Jesus abandon His body? Impossible. God is always with us. And we must remember that. But more than that, God has already given us victory against our powerful enemies. And that is the third truth we learn from this passage. Yes, we are fighting against powerful enemies, truth number one, but we are not fighting alone and we don't have to be worried. Why? Because God has already given us victory. God gives us victory against our enemies. Look at this passage again in verse 22. The Midianites have been defeated in the valley as God promised, as I said, but Israel has not yet been fully delivered completely from their enemies. But that's coming. Look at verse 22, how it ends. Verse 22, it says, When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man against his comrade and against all the army. And then we are told, And the army fled, that is the Midianite army, parts of it, fled as far as Beshita, towards Zera, as far as the border of abel Meola. By Tabat. I don't know if brother Michael thinks I'm pronouncing this right, but somewhere they fled somewhere. They point, in fact, the place names in verse 22 are suggesting that the Midianites are fleeing in a southeastly direction, right? towards the river Jordan. They are running away from, from, from where they are going south, trying to cross the river Jordan. There some of them are on the run. Some of them have killed themselves in this stampede now a number of them are running away trying to cross the river Jordan but if you are Gideon at this point I mean, some of us are, we will do this of course we will throw a party I mean 300 let's have a celebration we've won we've won but Gideon doesn't do that instead of celebrating Gideon puts that on hold he calls for reinforcements uh, to cut them off look at verse 23 to verse 24 there and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher. And from Omanites, these are the people before who were there, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, "Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan." We stop there, just there for a minute. We we notice here that first of all, that Gideon gives out this call. Gideon is giving out this call, not because he's disobeying the Lord, no, but because Gideon now is a man empowered by God and is pressing on his advantage. He wants to finish them off. And he calls on Ephraim to come and help. And the men of Ephraim answer the call. They respond. Look out, there's 24 ends. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth and also the Jordan. The enemy is defeated and his leaders are captured. Look at this 25. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Simply put, this is a decisive. And brutal victory for Israel. Notice how it ends there, particularly in verse 25 at the end. And then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb, the two kings of Midian, and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. The men of Ephraim have completely decimated the enemy and they're carrying with them these two heads. And they are bringing these heads to Gideon. Now, if we are honest, when we read that final sentence, we are a bit shocked that the Bible has this detail here uh, of chopped heads. I mean, what are we to make of that detail? I mean, why is it there in the Bible? It's the sort of thing that gets Richard Dawkins very excited when he reads this sort of stuff. We are wondering why is such detail necessary here? Well, the reason God includes this in the Bible is that it helps us to see the ugliness of sin in our world. This is what sin has done to us. It has reduced us to killing each other and chopping off each other's heads as prides of war. It has been this way, of course, since the days of Cain and Abel, since Cain murdered Abel. And in some sense, we might say, our fight for each other is part of that longing for us to get back in the peaceful garden. Why do we fight one another? We make wars so we may live in peace. Human warfare is, an effort, is a redemptive effort on the part of man to create peace on his own terms. And God is showing us that it's future. This is what we have done to each other. God is saying, look, the peace we long for is not something we can achieve by our hands or through human warfare. It is something God does for us. And that is what is at the heart of this passage. This victory of Israel over their enemies, in all its brutality, ultimately points us forward in time to a great Savior. It points us forward to God's plan of restoration through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this victory of Israel is pointing us forward to this Jesus who comes as man and instead of taking up a sword, no, he takes up the cross and he lays down his life on the cross for our sin. Do you see, Jesus has taken on all our violence on the cross and what has he done in exchange? He has unleashed a devastating victory against all our enemies. See, the good news of the Bible is that if you belong to Jesus, you share in this victory. You are now more than a conqueror in Jesus. Now, of course, struggles, of course, will come in your life. But the difference is that Even when such struggles come, you are facing them as a victor through the cross of Christ. And because you are facing your struggles as a victor in Christ, there is always hope in whatever situation you are facing. And notice here in these verses there is something more, Because this victory here is also not just pointing us to the cross, it is pointing us forward to the mother of all victory parades. It is pointing us forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. When Jesus will appear any moment to restore all things, God himself will finally dwell with us in total victory. One day there will be no more wars, no more orbs and zips, no more killings. We will live forever in God's glorious eternal kingdom. Friends, if you are God's child, you face powerful enemies, yes, but the victory has already been secured on the cross. The, the good news of Jesus is that there are no losers among those who have the Lord as their portion. We may be broken, battered, deprived, disdained, despised, defamed, oppressed in every direction as aliens in this dark world. We may even limp in pain to the finishing line. But if we are in Jesus, we have already crossed the finishing line. And the crown of glory awaits us. God has given us victory against our enemies. So how then should we respond? How should we respond? Well, we must follow Ephraim. What's the takeaway for us here this evening? We must follow Ephraim. Not physically, of course. But we must follow their example. What do we see they do? They receive the victory. And that's our final point. We must receive the victory. When Gideon issues the call for the people to join and help finish off the fight, Ephraim immediately answers the call. We read that in verse 24. Let's just read that again. In verse 24 there we say, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the whole country of Ephraim saying, Come against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. Now interesting enough here that Ephraim could have done what other tribes did in Judges chapter 4 in Judges chapter 5 rather. Do you remember what some of the tribes did? They just didn't answer the call. They couldn't be bothered to help Deborah and Barak. It could have refused to answer. It could have said, why are you coming to us now? The interesting thing is that if you are reading in advance, of course, looking forward to the coming Sunday, you will know that this is not just theory. If you glance over Judges chapter 8, verse 1 to 3, you will see there that Ephraim is actually not very happy that Gideon did not ask them first. They will complain about that. But... You know, don't be too hard on them next week. (laughs) They'll complain, but notice here that despite their complaints, they have answered the call and they have received this victory won by Gideon. They are participating in it. We are saying they've received the victory because the 300 men are more or less won. Ephraim is merely participating in this victory. it's merely doing its bit, so to speak, to ensure the job is done. And receiving victory for them means what? Obeying Gideon and agreeing to follow him and fight the fleeing Midianite kings of Oreb and Zeb and capturing them and bringing these heads, so to speak, to Gideon uh, to show him that, yes, you are the one who is ruling Israel now and we are now following your leadership. And in the same way, that's why receiving victory for them means is following and obeying Gideon. And in the same way, we also have received a great salvation from our enemies, through Jesus, our everlasting Gideon, we must now receive that victory by putting to death that which remains. You see, for Ephraim, receiving victory means killing in God's name to free themselves. But God is not asking us to kill anyone. We are not instruments of judgment. We are recipients of God's mercy through the Son, dying on the cross, our sin. So what Jesus is asking all of us is to receive victory by what? By putting to death any Midianites, so to speak, any spiritual Midianites of sin in us. And we do this not in our strength, no, we do this in the strength that Jesus provides. Surrendering to him, Jesus, our everlasting Gideon. And just as Ephraim removes the two Midianite kings and hands them over to Gideon we also must hand over every inch of our lives to the Lord Jesus. A.W. Pink says this, If any occupation or association is found to hinder our communion with God or our enjoyment of spiritual things, then it must be abandoned. Anything in my habits or ways which merge happy fellowship with the brethren, or robs me of power in service, is to be unsparingly judged and made an end of. Burned. Whatever I cannot do for God's glory must be avoided. That's what A.W. Pink says. Friends, you will never receive victory against sin in your life if you are Lord and Master of your life. To receive victory, and enjoy that victory we have already received on the cross, to experience that, we must completely surrender, completely surrender to Jesus. So the question I want to leave you this evening, as Ed W. Pink puts it, is where in your life do you need to surrender? Where do you need to burn some stuff? Is it in the area of how you spend your money? Is it in the area of your hobbies? Is it in the area of idolization of family? Is it in putting relationships and friendships above Jesus? Jesus says in A.W. Pink's word, Burn that stuff! Bring it before the Lord, and put to death that which remains. And the truth is that when we understand the grace, the link between this morning and this evening is simple. It is this. When we understand the grace of our God, which has come to us in Jesus, crucified for us in witness, it is the only response we can give to totally surrender to such a loving Savior. When we understand how wonderful it is to have a God who works through our witnesses, What can we give him apart from our lives? Friends, we've seen this evening that we are in the story of Gideon that we are not fighting alone. Yes, we are fighting powerful enemies, but we are not fighting alone. And the good news is that God is with us in the fight and we already have that victory. And we must respond to it by total surrender. Receive the victory that's already yours in Christ through total surrender to Christ. Amen.